Tuesday, March 30th, the macro setup, along with my friend Dan Nathan, brought to you by IGUS, one of the fastest growing foreign exchange dealers in North America. Dan, how are you, man? I'm doing well, guy, but I'm feeling a little slighted here. Usually you say my dear friend. Did something happen? What did I say? Did I say that I leave out dear? You just said my friend. My dear friend, Dan Nathan, brought to you by IGUS. I'm sorry. I'm kidding. right? No, I I apologize for not putting the deer in there. But we're also going to be joined later, by the way, by Peter Hanks, uh, strategist at Daily FX, who, by the way, we have to ask him about this. He's a Laker fan, which makes zero sense to me. (laughs) Clearly a fair weather Laker fan. But but I digress. Look, markets continue to sort of scream, although, listen, muted over the last couple of days. We're going to talk about the VIX, uh, can't get out of its own way. Markets are fascinating, but the big story to me is the story that everybody's been talking about now for the last 48 to 72 hours, this hedge fund that blew up. I mean, I think I can say that. And is it systemic or is it contained? I think that's what the market is trying to figure out right now, Dan. It most certainly did blow up. And it's funny because I was on the phone with a friend um, this morning who's a reporter and we were talking and, you know, like, it, it's just kind of interesting that like there, people are like, what is a family office? All of a sudden, you know, like, like 10 years ago, they had to kind of describe what a hedge fund was relative yeah. to other like, you know, asset pools, that sort of thing. So it's just another name. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, it means that they just manage inside capital, but it doesn't mean that they're not taking the sorts of risks that we've come to associate with hedge funds. This is a really interesting story. I, I mean, it's one of those ones that comes out of nowhere. You know, you mentioned market screaming guy. I think you're talking about the Dow Jones Industrial Average at new all-time highs yesterday on the close, the S&P 500, mm-hmm. as you would say, within a whisper of its all-time mm-hmm. highs. But there are some other stock markets that have been correcting, and that would be the NASDAQ, and that would be the Russell. And the NASDAQ is the one that I think is most interesting as we kind of relay it back to what's going on with this hedge fund blow up, because the issue here is that this fund, this family office, okay, own very large positions using lots of leverage in some stocks that we might have a few weeks ago been calling meme stocks, okay, but they were obviously pushing these stocks higher with tremendous amount of leverage, right? And when they started to come back to earth, it caused the counterparties of the swaps of the family office to have margin calls because they right. didn't think the fund could cover the capital. What's interesting though, and we've been talking about this on Fast Money a little bit, is that the correction in some of these major tech names, these are all stocks that lots of big asset pools own on swap using leverage that are basically um, a bit more opaque than like traditional filing. So there might be a connection to the subtle correction in the NASDAQ relating to this family office in particular, but maybe there are other risks. So the question you asked is, is it systemic? We do not know. And I don't think it's the sort of thing that could take down you know, any of these big banks. But when you see some of the numbers that you're hearing out of these two counterparties, which are second tier banks, they're big numbers, right? And they could have material impacts on the capital ratios of these banks. The no question about it. And you know, is it systemic? I mean, for the system, probably not. It's not systemic. But don't think for a minute that every one of these family offices, their broker dealer, their prime broker, whatever term you want to use, whatever entity you want to look at, is not examining with a fine tooth comb some of yeah. the positions going on. I mean, if you have to have an emergency meeting to sort of scour and look, could we be next type of thing? And family offices, it sounds quaint. I mentioned last night, it sounds like sort of Jed Clampett's family <laughs> office, if you remember the Beverly Hillbillies. And 10 or 15 years ago, that's exactly what they were. 
some of these family offices have grown to sizes that we never saw in hedge funds 10 years ago. And the fact that effectively, you know, they can fly under the um, radar screen under the purview, you know, without the purview of some of these governing agencies. I mean, you could say what you want. I mean, I think that's yeah. one of the main reasons a lot of these guys and gals create family offices. So they don't have to deal with some of this stuff. And that works until it doesn't. And leverage is a great thing until it's not. And oh, by the way, I clearly don't know this, but I've been saying it since January. I've always thought that there was some puppet master or puppet masters wow. in GameStop. And maybe we've sort of stumbled upon uh, potentially one of them in the form of this hedge fund that we've been talking about for the last few minutes. I just think there are a lot of moving parts here for the market just to sort of the, the news cycle is such that 24 hours later, people forget they moved on to the next thing. But I'm telling you, I still think uh, there are going to be ramifications for this. And maybe it is manifesting itself or has manifested itself in an 8% peak to trough decline in the NASDAQ and obviously the Russell, which we'll talk about, Dan. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that some of these like kind of things that we might seem to kind of indicate could be a black swan or a canary in the coal mine or something like that. They generally don't play out that way. You know, this reminds me a bit of 2007 when we started to see stuff going on well before the mm -hmm. market topped out and we were in the midst of the financial crisis. I'll just mention this as I'm looking at my Bloomberg screens right here, I see a headline that says Wells Fargo reports no losses from closing Archigo's um, exposure. So the more that we see that from potential counterparties of that um, family office or fund, um, you know, the more comfortable the markets will get. Let's go to this S&P chart guy, because this is a two year um, from the start of 2019 here. And I've drawn a line that maybe some of our macro setup um, OGs who follow us each week oh, are pretty does familiar. That mean, does that mean an original gangster? Yes, yes. How long have we been doing the macro setup for Natix and IG now? Since it seems October. Like, there Since you go. October. Uh, I have a feeling there are some OGs who really enjoy this. We enjoy doing it. Um, but look at that line that I drew right there, Guy. It's from that kind of April 2019 high. You connect it to the um, February of 2020 high. You connect it to early January high. I mean, listen, that is like about as, as healthy of resistance as you might see on a chart mm -hmm. of the biggest equity index in the planet. Now, I've simplified it, picking out all, all the how we'd like to draw in here and there. So what did I do here? You see that yellow is the 200-day moving average. I know you're going to say something about the NASDAQ or the NDX's 200-day moving average when we get to that chart, but I drew a horizontal line from the September 2nd high, and you see that that, that line is almost converging with the 200-day moving average down there at 35.45 or so. That seems to be the level in which we would have some pretty healthy technical support if we were to correct. So we're very near 4,000, a move back towards, you know, 3,500, mm -hmm. what, 12% or something like that from no, here? It's, Do you it's see that as 10 a and potential percent. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. It's a 10 and a half, 11% move. We've seen the move of that magnitude in the NASDAQ before the NASDAQ bounced. Now it's down, you know, 8% peak to trough. And oh, by the way, what you didn't draw but if I'm eyeballing this, you know, I see an uptrend line from the March lows, and that forms a bit of a pennant here. And obviously, that uptrend line is a little bit steeper. So you have to ask yourself, where does a break going to occur? Is it going to break out to the upside through the resistance that Dan showed you? Or is it going to break down through the support, you know, which probably comes in the form of, you know, 75, 80 or so S&P handles from where we are now? I think clearly it's the latter, not the former, and, and we'll see. But that 3550 level, 
which again coincides with the 200 day also coincides with that horizontal line that Dan drew makes a lot of sense. And it makes more sense, you know, with a VIX around 20 and a half, 21 with the complacency out there as we go into earnings. I think that's what you want to watch. Those are the resistance levels you want to watch. And those are the support levels you want to watch in the S&P 500, Dan. I think it's interesting that you mentioned, so as we go into earnings, what's going to happen here? The next day, we know that the Q1 um, has ended. And you look at the performance of the major indices. I think the Russell 2000, the small caps, is up about 10% of the year. The S&P 500 is up about 5%. And the NASDAQ's only up 1%. It's not too often in the last decade we have seen that sort of underperformance um, from the NASDAQ. Let's go to the end. Slide it, Earl. Slide it, Earl. For you match game 74 (laughs) fans, Gene Rayburn, slide it, Earl. And here we are. I mean, that's another great chart that you drew. I know. Thank you, Guy. Um, look Look what I did here. I connected that technical resistance. What's interesting about the NDX is that it did fail. It did not break out above that long term technical resistance. And now it's been in this kind of drawdown phase. I think last month at the lows, it was down about 10% the NASDAQ. 100. And it doesn't really seem to have um, a whole heck of a lot of gusto right here. I just mentioned one other thing. Two of the largest stocks in the NASDAQ 100, Apple and Mm -hmm. Amazon, combined make up about $4 trillion in market cap and probably close to I don't know, 20 or so percent of that index of 100 stocks, they can't get out of their own way. Apple is so heavy and feels like it's literally about to crack. And Amazon has not confirmed a single new high in the S&P since September. So, you know, without the participation of some of the big ones, and you may say Facebook's about to break out and, and Alphabet trades really well and Microsoft trades really well. But I guess my point is, is that we've seen this rotation out of some big growth names, out of some big cap tech. If those other names that I just mentioned that act well all started lower. You have a NASDAQ 100 that's trading down near 12,000 easily, don't you guys? But, and doesn't that make sense though? I mean, we talk yeah. about mean reversion all the time and you go back, listen, you can go back on this chart. You can see the mean reversion in the form of trading back to the 200 day, then accelerating higher, trading back to the 200 day. We yeah. haven't really visited it, Dan. I mean, you could say this since the summer. Uh, So it's pretty remarkable that we've been able to stay above it for so long. And until recently, the the level of which we were above it, you know, 18 to 20 percent was somewhat staggering. I think it's a healthy move that we've sort of given back 8 percent or 10 percent or so. And I think 11,900 makes sense for a myriad of different reasons. And I think it's good that you bring up the two A's in your MAGA complex. And you you do bring up Facebook. Facebook is its own entity. Clearly got an upgrade yesterday, I think, um, Somebody put on a, a $385 price target, and on Fast Money last night, we sort of explained how, you know, 385 given the context of where we are in terms of multiples, it's not outrageous to think oh. that Facebook can't get there. It sort of puts a 29 or so multiple on them. With the growth that they have and with in an environment where valuations don't seem to matter, that's not ridiculous to think. But Apple and Amazon are completely different stories, and to your point, they haven't traded well. Specifically, I think it's important to mention Amazon, which is sort of, as, as we used to say in football, the granddaddy of them all. And that hasn't been able to get out of its own way. So I think it's, listen, I think if you're trading around this, if you're looking for levels, that sort of, let's just even it out. 12,000 level in the NASDAQ makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. Yeah. I want to take this back to that story that we were just talking about, the hedge fund with the leverage and the unwind and the margin calls. Don't think for a second that, you know, stocks like Apple and Amazon and um, that are down, you know, 12, 13, 14 percent. 
those are stocks that own large hedge funds. Okay, that's but then look at some of the growthier names, you know. If you look at Zoom, Zoom traded 589 in October, and I think it was trading almost as low as 300 yesterday. Yeah. I don't know where it is right now. And then you look at that's done 50% nearly. And then you look at, um, you know, a, uh, like a Tesla down 30%. So there are some major correction in widely held names. And so understanding that, that a lot of investors own these big positions, you know, it, when you have that sort of drawdown in some of your most convicted largest names, you can get margin calls. And that could be what's going on here. So the question that I would have is that if Wall Street banks, prime brokerage groups, and swaps divisions are going to start tightening up those leverage that they're willing to allow their customers to have, you might see a further downdraft. And I just want to bring it back really quickly. Back in August, there were lots of NASDAQ stocks that were just skipping higher and higher and higher. And we saw this unusual call activity day after day after day of upside call buying, right? And we know what that was. That was SoftBank kind of creating mm -hmm. this gamma squeeze, right? And what happened in September? Those names got destroyed. They absolutely got destroyed. So I guess my point that I'm trying to make here is that I don't think that this swap situation with this one fund, um, you know, is, is the dawn of a new financial crisis, but it could clearly be the sort of thing where we see a deleveraging period. And again, you know, where, where we talk about the VIX, you know, just kind of hovering above 20 here, it seems awfully complacent. Um, so do you want to move to the Russell and get us started on the Russell guy and tell us why you think the outperformance has been there? Um, look at how just that it was just a parabolic move. And well, the app, what you think is that's also down, what, 7 8% from its yeah. recent highs. And it's not traded well now in a couple of weeks. And I think this is, I've said, it, I've said it for years on Fast Money. I've said it on this program as well, that I think the Russell sort of leads. It leads by a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, leads us back to the upside, and it potentially leads us to the downside. I think the S&P and the NASDAQ typically lag. That's just my view. I mean, you can go back and look to see if I'm correct. But what I will say to answer your question it outperformed simply because bond yields started moving higher. There was this belief that, you know, the economy is going to grow at a significant pace. People were feeling good about the vaccines. And it made sense that the most economically sensitive area, effectively the Russell, was doing really well. What I also have been saying for a while, there's going to be a point and there's going to be sort of this line of demarcation, maybe in the form of yields that the Russell, became, you know, a tailwind for the Russell became a headwind. And I all along thought it was like one and a half percent or so in, in the 10-year yield. I was pretty close, actually, because if you look, you know, when the 10-year yield sort of ran through that one and a half percent, sort of coincided with when the Russell started to give it up a bit. And here we are with 10-year yields north of 1.7 percent. And you can see over the last two weeks, the Russell hasn't traded particularly well. I absolutely believe that the trend line that Dan drew was going to come in right around that 2000 level ish sort of a little bit south but you get my drift that's absolutely in the crosshairs here and oh by the way that 200 day moving average which comes in around 1800 or so is also uh in the crosshairs and i will tell you that if things don't go as smoothly you know you had some people from the cdc making some pretty um cautious comments over the last couple of days you know if things don't go as smoothly as people would like them to go for this reopen it's going to manifest itself in the Russell. And I think we're on the verge of it. Not on the verge of it. We're in the midst of it right now. 
Yeah, you mentioned the Russell with this the economically sensitive. Like obviously, that people are loving this two trillion in fiscal stimulus, the potential for three trillion in infrastructure, the potential for these vaccines to work very well and be on the other side of this pandemic. That's why you have this outperformance. There's also a lot of financials in there. Let's go to the XLF chart. That's yes, the ETF that tracks the uh, tracks the banks. It's a twenty year chart. It's just important to show the devastation that was done during the financial crisis in 07-08 into the lows in 09. and it took you know, nearly 12 years to get back above those prior highs. You look at the move that we had off the lows. I mean, the banks were really meandering and really discounting the potential for the reopening trade um, up until just like November, you know, in a way, until we got the vaccine news and then the election. And look at that move in a straight line. I'll just say this, that if we are going to go into a deleveraging period you know, banks are going to suffer some losses with some of this stuff, um, as hedge funds will. I think you could have a 10% lower in the XLF back to that breakout level, and that would be a great level to yeah. reload somewhere around 31 or so. That's exactly right. I was going to say 31 is your level, and that's effectively a 10% move, which is not ridiculous given the run it's had. I mean, these bank stocks, which, you know, we talked about a name like Citibank at its trough. I think the stock yeah. was trading 49 or so, and I was mentioning to people, how it was trading below, was trading at 58% of tangible book. And what I was saying was, we haven't seen these levels. Actually, it was worse than levels we saw during the financial crisis. And I said, it didn't make a lot of sense. And it should correct. And you should see it somewhere around 1.3% of tangible book. And that's what happened. For me, if you want to value these banks, if you're trying to figure out where these should be trading, look at what they say tangible book is when they report earnings over the next few weeks and then do the math. Names like JP Morgan deserve a premium. Names like City do not. Um, but they all, in my opinion, should be trading north of one. And that's where we are right now. But the move has been uh, parabolic in a word. And I think yeah. to Dan's point, a 10% correction, if you're bullish, you actually want that to happen, Dan. Yeah, I think so too. I think that makes sense. If you're bullish and you were thinking about how to position your portfolio for some of the, the sectors, the single names that you like the, the most, you know, you really have to start thinking about how they look in the back half of the year. Parabolic moves are not things that you want to buy into. Ask our hedge fund friend who was buying Viacom all the way up to $100, mm -hmm. uh, it seems like just too recently. Let's go to the VIX real quickly here, Guy. Um, you know, we know that that 19 level was the breakout level last year when the market topped out here. You know, it seems like it wants to break lower. We've seen a series of kind of lower highs here. Um, not really worried about too much here. And, and and I guess that's reflective in the S&P 500 too, you know, within a whisper, as you often say, of its all-time high. The VIX, listen, I never thought the VIX, well, never, never is a long time, but I didn't think we'd see the VIX close below 19 anytime soon. And we've seen it a couple times over the last couple of weeks, which is interesting for a number of different reasons. You saw something pretty funky on Friday. You saw a big move in the VIX from about 19 and a half to about 21 and a half in the course of minutes. Maybe that coincided with a lot of things we're talking about now. Yeah. But again, I think it speaks to just the hair trigger that the VIX is on at these levels. And any disruption whatsoever, I think you could easily see a VIX back to the 30, 35 level. Now, again, I didn't think we'd be below 20 and definitely not below 19, but here we are. But you know, in terms of trading, every time the VIX gets down here, it's sort of been, you know, three days ahead of a significant sell-off in the broader market, which, oh, by the way, 
are getting shorter and shorter in duration. But I think the yeah. VIX, you absolutely have to watch. Yeah, it's a total joke, in my opinion, that you had bank heads or investment banking heads you know, summoned by the Fed to do this forced liquidation, and they're running in front of each other. And you had this happen on Thursday into Friday, and then you saw these huge blocks trading the liquidation of this fund. And you're telling me that the S&P closed up 1.6% that day, and you had the VIX kind of jumping a little bit. I know why the VIX was jumping. There was some serious hedging going on by those same banks yeah. that were doing liquidation, but that makes no sense. All right, let's hit the uh, the U.S. 10-year Treasury yield here. I have a three-year chart guy. You've been all over this one. You said it's going to go to 1.5. It went to 1.5. Now you think at least 2% two, uh, 2% or so. That seems to be, at least on the one-year chart, some near-term technical resistance. I'm just going to slide it over to slide the long-term chart. Because this is the one. This is yeah, the so one we got to that. All right, at. you speak to that. Go, get in there. Well, no, this is, I mean, obviously, listen, rates have been in a 21 21- year downtrend, right? I mean, to Dan's point, you know, rates just go lower and lower over the course of time. But we have seen moves to the upside, significant moves over the last 20 years in the midst of this significant downtrend. And that's what we're seeing right now. So does 2% make sense? Absolutely. And I've been saying that for a while. And I've been wrong about a lot of things. But this is one we've actually gotten right. And I think the market is discounting this at its own peril. I think higher rates, although people will say it means a great economy is coming, it also means that the borrowing costs continue to go up. And that, in an environment where debt is all over the place, is not healthy. So that 2% level, that danger zone that we're right in the middle of by those two horizontal lines make a lot of sense. And oh, by the way, that downtrend line that Dan drew, this 21-year downtrend, if you really want to play stock market here, we get through 2%. I mean, there's a very good chance you trade up to two and three quarters or so. Now, I'm not ready to make that call yet, yeah. although... I think we're on the precipice of something big. And at a certain point, the market's going to care. And oh, by the way, David Tepper, who is a genius and has lost more money than I will ever have in my life, um, it was around one and a half percent when he said 10-year yields were probably going to stabilize and, and go sideways to lower for a while. Well, he was right for about two and a half days. And here we are at one and three quarters. And I still think we're headed higher, Dan. Yeah, so here's another chart. I just want to go to Bitcoin real quick. This is the one-year chart. And I think this one is pretty interesting for a whole host of reasons. I think it obviously reflects a lot of the stuff that you've been talking about as it relates to debt levels and uh, you know interest rates, that sort of thing. But look at the one-year chart of this and, and just look at the year-to-date. I kind of... Um, I kind of highlighted the peak to trough declines. The first one this year was 31%. The next one was 26%. uh, And then this last one was about 18%. They're getting shallower. It looks like Bitcoin um, is about to break out. And there's a whole host of reasons, like I just said, other than rates. Other than you know monetary policy, mm-hmm. other than the course of uh, currencies, Peter Hanks is going to talk to us a little bit about the dollar in about um, a minute here. Um, but let's go to the twenty or the, the the Bitcoin chart since its inception. This is not a log chart, so it looks a bit goofy here. Um, but you just get a sense for where we are in this kind of frenzy here. And I just had one other thing. We're seeing mass adoption of this, whether you like it or not. I just listened to a conversation guy that you had with Michael Saylor for Context 365. We posted it on our feed on the uh, tape podcast. So check that out, guys, this morning. It just hit. Awesome conversation. I mean, he said to you, guy, Michael Saylor, CEO of MicroStrategy, has been buying what they would call a you-know-what ton of Bitcoin on their corporate balance sheet. He thinks it's around for generations. He said you can't have 
an asset like this go to a trillion dollars and have it go away. I mean, mass adoption is here. Just wrap us up with that and let's get to Peter um, on some of these currency well, well, you know, just think about it quickly. We're at 58,000 or thereabouts in Bitcoin and, and nobody's really talking about it, which means yeah. we you talk about acceptance on a corporate level, acceptance on putting it on your balance sheet. Well, there's also an acceptance of the price now. You know, a month, two months ago, 58,000, we would have been jumping up yeah. and down. Now we're here. And it's sort of a ho-hum thing. So the market is accepting these prices, which is extraordinarily encouraging if you're in the cryptocurrency space. So, you know, although I thought we were going to see a move definitely back down to 35, 40,000, with each passing day, the longer we stay here, that's that old adage, the market doesn't give you a lot of time to buy the lows, doesn't give you a lot of time to sell the highs. And the fact that we've been sticking around here, to me, means we're probably going higher. With that said, Dan, who should we bring in now? I think Peter Peter Hanks from Daily FX. He, now, he's been a, a frequent guest on the macro setup, hasn't he? he? He has, and he does a great job. And Peter, welcome, and thanks for listening. Uh, you heard me sort of fricassee you early on. You, before we get into I the did. dollar and some of your views, talk about this Laker stuff, because it makes zero <laughs> sense. Fairweather fan, that is quite the allegation. Uh, yeah. th those are almost fighting words, but I am originally, although I live in Chicago now, originally from Southern California. Uh -huh. So growing up watching uh, Kobe, uh, very successful years. Now we have another, you know, incredible team and a former Laker, Julius Randle, is now carrying your Knicks yes. to a fourth seed in the East. So uh, the Lakers... Serious. looking Breaking down the NBA, Peter Hanks. So I didn't know yeah. you were from California. That makes sense because I thought you were from Chicago. I'm like, all right, this really, this is just a young guy <laughs> jumping on the Laker bandwagon, which, by the way, you got about another two and a half, three years, and then you're going to be right back into doldrums. And, and, and Jeannie Buss, by the way, sort of said, bring it in terms of what the Nets yeah. are doing, which I totally dig. Good for Genie Bus. Anyway, you've heard the conversation we have. Let's sort of go to the dollar. I know you brought some charts, Peter. I will say flat out that, you know, I had the dollar right for a long time, but the last month and a half, two months with this move in the DXY from about 89 and a half to 93 and change has caught me off guard. In retrospect, you sh I should have seen it coming, but I didn't. Let's talk about the dollar and some of your views. Yeah, I think it's quite surprising as well. Uh, I think dollar weakness, short dollar was one of the most popular trades out there for a long time. And, uh, you know, for good reason, because that was coming to fruition. The Fed during this whole reversal that we're now seeing where DXY is bucking up to 94 or thereabouts, uh, the Fed really hasn't changed much. I mean, I think it's more of a, a relative outperformance thing on the growth side of uh, the story. So, some of these projections we're getting just incredible out of the United States. Uh, while on the other hand, if we look at a currency like the euro, which is a significant portion of the dollar basket, they're having a little bit more trouble with their vaccine rollout. So uh, growth expectations may be a little bit muted by comparison over there. Meanwhile, in the United States, vaccine rollouts coming out hot. Uh, consumer confidence this morning blowing past expectations. So while we're seeing some of uh, some concern in these family offices and certainly in some tech stocks that have kind of pulled that speculative appetite higher since March 2020, uh, those have kind of taken a backseat. But I think the dollar strength that we're seeing here is driven off of uh, relative outperformance expectations. And then you bring in the rising yields equation as well. And uh, there's some real tailwind forces there for the U.S. dollar.
No doubt about it. You brought some charts, so let's speak to it. I think the first one you brought is sort of a basket. Um, and maybe you can speak to this in terms of what you're seeing. Yeah, so this is a longer-term chart of the U.S. dollar basket here. Going back to uh, really 2011, you can see that rising trend line that has acted as support a few times throughout the last decade now, really. Uh, we got a breach in 2020. Now we're coming to it. It's serving as resistance, but we're knocking on the door. And uh, some breakouts that we've seen over the last few days could suggest that if we retake this trend line, we're in for more dollar strength here in the future. Uh, particularly, again, the yields very, very encouraging. But if we take a look at dollar yen, which is one of those key breakout currencies, especially today, just pushing higher and higher, uh, looking at just a one-year chart here, really, of post-pandemic, to give you kind of a look at some of the Fibonacci levels uh, to keep in mind. You can see we ran up to a Fib in about spring last year, kind of a swing high a little bit. And just this past week, we were knocking on the door of that again now for the first time since the initial breakdown. Uh, while really not much has changed from the Fed, especially at their March FOMC meeting, I thought it was quite dovish. Apparently not dovish enough for US dollar bears. It looks like dollar yen is really going to uh, push out to the top side even further here, although you could make the argument that it is overextended. But when you look to the yen side of the equation, just Monday afternoon, we had the Bank of Japan governor, uh, Kuroda, say that the BOJ is not planning to stop their ETF purchases. If anything, they plan to buy more. So they're uh, pedal to the metal on the dovish side of things. Juxtapose that with the U.S., where we're kind of moving into a, a super cycle of growth here. And you can put the puzzle pieces together and start to see a pretty significant breakout uh, in dollar yen here. And really, I think the yen across most crosses is going to be one of the weaker currencies. On the other side of the spectrum, you have some of those more growth-oriented currencies, maybe the Canadian dollar, the Australian dollar which are a little bit more sensitive to commodities, uh, those should be well-suited in this environment where we look to kind of spool back up into full employment and uh, drive some more growth here. But again, a key factor behind U.S. dollar strength is going to be U.S. Treasury yields. And U.S. Treasury yields are also a key factor behind some of this gold weakness that we've been seeing. So let's jump over to a chart of gold here. Another significant breakdown. It seems like every time I come on the macro setup, gold is breaking down. So if that should tell you anything, it's that gold weakness has yeah. been pretty prevalent. Uh, so just looking at a chart here, we have that downtrend mark since August. We have another Fibonacci sequence here just to kind of keep our levels in mind. That Fib sequence has some potential support around 1675 as of today, Tuesday, March 30th. That support is coming into play. It looks like we might break beneath. And if we do, that could really open the door to some further losses here. So it sounds like Guy is maybe a little bit uh, bullish on U.S. Treasury yields here. I tend to lean the same way. And I think that spells more trouble for gold. So, so Peter, let me ask you this, because you're uh, a millennial here. And all the <laughs> kids today are uh, pretty excited about this cryptocurrency. I think they call it the Bitcoin. Um, so it's just fascinating to me. I get the reasons why people are flocking into Bitcoin. It's digital gold, that sort of thing, the store value argument. It just it's a bit shocking to me that 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 
that gold has just not been able to show any bit of relative strength. You know, you know what I mean? It just seems like the, the old reasons to own gold just seem to be out the window. And now with Bitcoin at a trillion and global gold at, you know, probably south of 10 trillion, there's a gap that that is just narrowing here. Is that what's going on? Is that a big part of this story? I think it could be a part. I, it's hard to say if it's the driving factor, uh, but it does seem like gold has kind of lost its luster. And yeah. for the longest time, you know, everyone pointed to gold as an inflation hedge. Well, we're not seeing it yet, but we are seeing some inflation expectations. Again, uh, back to the consumer confidence port that came out this morning, there were pretty lofty inflation expectations in there. And Gold is down significantly on the day, so it's not really acting as that inflation hedge. Yeah. Meanwhile, you can look at Bitcoin. I just saw this morning you can now buy burritos from Chipotle with Bitcoin. Nice. Uh, you can buy a Tesla with Bitcoin. So, Peter, you, you know, know that somebody bought um, a pizza for 10,000 Bitcoin like 10 years ago. Do you think that was a good I trade? I saw that. I, ho- I hope that that pizza guy, and it could be, uh, you know, Guy Adami, because I always thought if the stock market thing doesn't work out for Guy Adami, he could just sit in the front of a pizza store no and spin some dough, and you'd probably make a fortune. I, you I've probably, done it before. People would come, and you would be like window dressing, because just look at you. You're just like a stud. Um, here's one question, and I'm going to throw it back to Guy for a second here, because Guy... I don't know if you know this, Peter. There's very few chart formations that get Guy as excited as a double top. And if you look at the GLD, I know that's the ETF that checks the gold. And you go back to its all-time high back in, uh, where were we? Back in 2011, Guy, it was somewhere like 163 or so. That's basically where we got to, uh, you know, we got to 170 or so. This is an epic double top. And after it topped out in 11, it spent years going down and it kind of wallowed around in that 100 to 120 range. Are we going back there in the GLD? You're asking me or Peter? The short asking answer, you if you're guy, asking yeah. me, well, yeah. the answer, is, <laughs> un- the unfortunate answer is yes. I mean, it's pretty clear yeah. that, you know, people, are, you know, they're, fl- they're getting out of gold and they're going to other places. But then let's talk about real quick. Now, we talked about leverage. If you don't think there's leverage going on in terms of the Bitcoin community, you got another thing coming. So the leverage that took down uh, this hedge fund that we're talking about, it's working its way around the system. And, you know, although Bitcoin is steady here, and I think there's been a flight to Bitcoin on the back of this, don't think for a second that the leverage that existed in other places doesn't exist here as well. So I wouldn't be surprised over the next couple months or so that we're not having a conversation about the leverage coming out of Bitcoin and that money finding its way into gold. But that's another topic for another day, I guess, Dan. It is. Peter, do you want to give us a kind of final thought here, wrapping up some of uh, this dollar move? Are you looking for it to be a a pause? If you look at that Dixie, um, you see that there's some technical resistance near term um, in that 94, 95 range. Um, Would you look for it to consolidate there, maybe pull back? I know that um, some of the lines that you drew, if it were rejected, we might see a move back towards the high 80s where it found support. Just give us, wrap up the Dixie and then Guy Guy Adami is going to take us out. Right. So on the Dixie, I really think this week has just so much event risk in it. We have uh, Infrastructure Day, as it's been dubbed, coming up Wednesday. That could kind of shed a little bit more light on how much spending spending is expected. 
There are now talks of another COVID stimulus package with some uh, more wage support in there and throw that on top of NFPs coming out Friday. There's a ton of event risk, also some liquidity risk with the holiday, uh, Good Friday coming up. So if I were to, you know, trade this this week, I'd probably wait on the sidelines, to be honest, um, and just wait for some more information. Now, if we do get rejected at some of that resistance marked on the chart, I don't see a pullback down to the high 80s. I think uh, 91 would probably be a more likely okay. level. Uh, I, I just think the relative growth of the United States is going to outpace just about uh, every other developed economy out there right now. So I think that will be a driving force going forward. Um, again, it seems like the Fed has, is pretty cut in its policy path. I mean, they're yep. pretty consistent. If there's yep. any sign of tapering, which we haven't seen yet, but if there's any sign of tapering, that will really spell some trouble for uh, equities. But I think that just kind of furthers the bullish case here for the Dixie. So that's kind of my view. If we do okay. get a pullback, it will be short-lived. And then I think strength could be a little bit more prevalent here uh, going forward. Well, we appreciate your time, Peter Hanks from Daily FX. And listen, as you know, number 22 will never be worn again by any member of the Los Angeles Lakers. And we lost Elgin Baylor, I believe, on March 22nd. I know you're not familiar with his game. I got to see him at the end of it, the tail end of his career as a young lad. And I will tell you, Elgin Baylor is one of the greats. So for you Laker fans out there, uh, maybe you pulled off this year for, you know, the great Elgin Baylor, number 22. Born in Washington, D.C., by the way. Anyway, I completely digress. That was Peter Hanks from Daily FX. Uh, Dan Nathan, half hour goes by like in 30 minutes. That. It's incredible how quickly things go by. But another macro setup. Thanks, Peter Hanks from Daily FX. Thanks, Dan Nathan. And obviously, thank IGUS, one of the fastest growing foreign exchange dealers in North America. We'll see you next week. And guess what? Next week, it'll be April. See you then. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of The Macro Setup. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe in podcast stores so you never miss an episode. We'll see you next week.